0: I don't know if I was born an atheist or if I just went through such extreme abuse and isolation literally before the age of six, that by the age of six, I have decided that God doesn't exist.
1: Oh, this is a good one. They're all good ones. But Daniela mestianek young is one of the most impressive and eloquent speakers to grace this here podcast. Born into the Children of God cult, whose famous members include Joaquin and River Phoenix, as well as Fleetwood Mac founder Jeremy Spencer and the Scream movie star Rose McGowan, Uh, Daniela was subjected to all sorts of abuse as a child. The Children of God cult was founded in California by David Berg before moving all around the world. I mean, despite her American accent, you might be surprised to learn that Daniela grew up in Brazil. Former members have accused the group of child sexual abuse and all sorts of other trauma. It's really quite a horrific organisation. Daniela's story is all the more interesting because after escaping the cult for Texas, she became a soldier in the US military. And she'll talk about that as well as the similarities between the army mentality where she was deployed in Afghanistan and that of a cult She is now releasing her book, Uncultured, A Memoir. Hers is a truly remarkable story. Do get hold of Uncultured in all the normal book places and follow her on Twitter and that. It's really interesting learning about what it was like for her getting into the sort of the worldly world or the non-cult world once she left and got away from all the bad cultiness of it all. Get the bonus episodes of this podcast where we keep chatting And I ask some more general philosophical questions on patreon.com slash andrewgold. And do please leave a review uh, on Apple Podcasts. But now you're on the edge of the Children of God cult with Daniela Mestinek-Young. Daniela, how are you doing? Where are you talking to us from today?
0: I am talking to you from Seattle.
1: Ooh, that is the town of uh, Nirvana, the band, and a sitcom that I used to like called Frasier, about Frasier Crane. He lived in Seattle. Is it nice there?
0: It is three months out of the year. It's the most beautiful place in America. And the other nine months, it's dark and rainy. Uh, used to live here. Now I live on the East coast, but back for visiting
1: Seattle sounds like England. You ever been to England?
0: I have not. It's like super on my list. I really want to do London and then India in the same trip because I love to study cultures and imperialism and how, (laughs) you know, when I, I grew up in Brazil and I, when I went to Portugal, I understood that there was a lot of Portuguese influence in Brazil But I didn't expect to find so much Brazilian influence in Portugal. And I'm fascinated by the interplay of those things.
1: That's a really good point. Because, yeah, it's not just that obviously the British went over there doing all of their um, white man's burden thing and trying to change the culture of India. I guess India's changed British culture dramatically, uh, particularly in the food that we eat and sometimes the music we listen to and uh, all sorts of things. So it's a great point. The tea, gotta love There's the tea. There's all kinds
0: of books about how, you know, what the British did to the world for tea and how they basically changed the face of the world forever for this one plant, which is...
1: It's important, isn't it? Tea? It's important. It's important. Well, I don't I don't drink it, really. I have, um, every now and then I have coffee. Are you a coffee or tea drinker?
0: I am. I'm both. I mean, I'm an American soldier, so you have to just have coffee straight in the veins, But I also really like tea and I have been getting more into it.
1: But your story is extraordinary, isn't it? So you were part of the Children of God's uh, cult. Uh, You were born into it. Tell us a little bit about uh, the Children of God and and what their beliefs are and those kinds of things.
0: Yeah. And so importantly for me, I was born third generation into it. So my mother was a 13-year-old teenager that was married to the 75-year-old prophet who, you know, her father worked for. So my grandfather was initially the one that joined the children of God, became the very high up in the finances, um, still was still is. And my mother was born in and raised in and when she was 15, or 14, actually, she was then impregnated with me. My father is older than my grandfather. And I was born then in, you know, generations into this cult in a commune in the Philippines and early life was, I always say exactly what you think of, of cults, but I guess people don't sometimes know, um, by the time I was born, we were, we were well into just sort of the trafficking of children as a labor force and, I grew up in these leadership communes with a hundred people, 200 people sometimes, and I was big. They used me a lot as a child actress and sort of singer and dancer on all of these children's quote, unquote, education videos that they did and then sold millions and millions and millions of around the world, um, which was essentially, you know, the children of God really was the belief system really almost became a front for the money, money laundering and child trafficking and just human trafficking around the globe in
1: general. How, and how large was it? And how many communes were there? And were you, and were you in, in touch with the other communes? So
0: at its height, it's always been about 10,000 members. And it was 10,000 members strong from 1972 through about 2009. And the best estimates are that about a hundred thousand people passed through some form of membership in the cults, right? And the way cults work is every couple of years, there's a new revelation from leaders to keep everybody you know, grounded and dedicated. And in David Burke's case, they were always about sex and just sort of more and more twisted sexuality. And so then people would leave, but then what also happens in cults sort of when the predicted apocalypse doesn't happen or when some huge revelation to test your faith, quote unquote, comes out. Most people, I think they say 90% of followers double down harder. So that's what sort of continually happened in the Children of God. They rebranded as the family and they just always had this membership and it was all around the world. So now scholars are actually calling the Children of God, most likely the world's largest cult. In that that membership was so huge, and I want to say they were in up to ninety countries.
1: Wow, wow! And why were you? Why was your particular commune in the Philippines then?
0: So that's where Berg was living at the time. So the prophet and all of his leadership people were in the Philippines. You know, in. I forget what exact year, but in the mid 70s, after Charles Manson, after uh, Jonestown, and all of these different things for cults started heating up, our prophet David Berg got his revelations from God that we needed to go essentially convert the third world. Um, which I like to say, you know, when the FBI is looking for you, having everybody change their names to Bible names and move to third world countries makes it much harder. And then you're in these third world countries. So I was born in the Philippines, but I also lived in Japan and then all over Latin America. I mostly grew up in Brazil. And what so cult mass movement also went from America in the 60s and 70s, Asia in the 80s, and then Latin America in the 90s. And having a commune with big high walls and 25 to 100 people living there, is so much less likely to get even noticed but definitely investigated than it would at this same time when in Australia they were raiding our compounds and in London they were taking us to court. But in you know the Philippines
1: and Brazil, we were just fine. Right. That makes me think of um, Jonestown because obviously that, that must have been why they were in uh, Guyana, right?
0: Yeah, and there's actually a very uh, renowned cult scholar that studied Jonestown for seven years before they went off to Guyana. And then obviously after, and he said like, this could not have happened if they had stayed in California. Um, on the flip side, I think because David Berg sent his organization all over the world and ran it on this militaristic, like reporting structure, he also didn't get that same kind of control. Like Jim Jones had his 900 something people right there under his thumb all the time. I definitely believe we would have gone towards gun stockpiling and violence and all the different stuff if we had stayed like a closer knit group because a cult leader basically always has to preempt their own apocalypse so that they can come true, which is what we saw with Jim Jones and David Koresh and Heaven's Gate and all of the violent ones.
1: Wow. What does that mean exactly? So they they have to preempt the apocalypse so that it happens.
0: It's like when you hype something up for so long, you eventually have to have a conclusion. And I'm going to compare it to orgasms and faking orgasms. But Jim Jones did that first, um, where he said, you know, death is the ultimate orgasm. And David Berg stole that directly from him. And this concept is eventually, you know, you're preparing, you're preparing, you're preparing. Eventually, you want the world to end. Um, And I will say, by the way, this is very similar to when you're in the military, And people used to ask me, like, Daniela, why do you want to go to war? And I would just say to them, well, the last time you got a new job, you trained for two weeks or a month, and then you wanted to do your job. Well, I have trained for a year and a half, right, to be an intelligence officer, and I only get to do my job if I go to war. So I want to go to war. I want to do my job. I want to prove myself um and i think in uncultured i uh we're able to show that kind of like how when you're in the cult you want the apocalypse you want the desperation and you see that mirrored uh in being a soldier
1: wow that's such a great point i i love doing this podcast because i talk to people that i would never have gotten the chance to speak to and i wouldn't have been able to get inside your head and i don't know anyone uh in the army or anything like that in the military uh and I never thought of that. And I just, my presumption, and I imagine a lot of people's presumption, is like, oh, God, you're going to war. This is this is so bad for everyone. But there also has to be that other part of you that's going, well, I've trained for this. This is what's, what I'm supposed... Otherwise, you're just training and training and never having that climax or orgasm, as you put it.
0: Yes, well, and, you know, obviously, this is this is sort of the book I wrote on, on Cultured. I'm standing on my first day of basic training. I'm holding this 50-pound duffel bag above my head, which is a completely like not only impossible to do for 2 hours but irrational. Like I'm pretty sure Andrew you've never gone outside and held 50 pounds above your head for 2 hours. So it was so obvious to me, right? And my first thought was, okay, I just joined another cult. So what comes next is the programming, right? In in militaries we program individuals to conduct violence on behalf of state. We program you to not run away from a bullet, but to run towards it. And to do that, we have to use all of these tools of influence and all of these tools of motivation. Um, Racist slurs, for example, is a big one in war, as we know, um, to get people to dehumanize the enemy so that they can kill them. And so it becomes this us versus them language. And, you know, I don't even... I've written about it in my book. I don't even like repeating it on the air, right? The things that we would say, but this is not different from growing up in the children of God and you all were the systemites and we were the family. We were God's army, literally what we called ourselves. And we were here on this mission, right? But the the systemites, even the people we were supposed to be trying to save are despicable to us. They are the enemy. This is what we've been programmed to believe. And for better or for worse, people love to say, yeah, the army is a cult, but it's a good cult. And I'm like, "Mm, it's an organization designed to kill people as effectively as possible. Maybe it's for the purposes of American defense or American life or whatever we tell ourselves. But the programming and then program your soldiers and then deploy your soldiers for a mission is exactly what we see in cults.
1: Just like in the military. Did you ever see that movie, A Few Good Men, where Jack Nicholson says, uh, "You can't handle truth"? Yes. I like that. Um, that changed how I felt because I was just—I I mean, I would probably ugh, I, I, always going on about politics, but how I, you know, I, I'd say I'm a centrist or whatever, and I've got some views that are very liberal, and and then some that are sort of mildly, moderately, whatever. Uh, but, but I was further left until I saw that. And that speech really spoke to me just because it was just that thing of, um, it's so easy for the rest of us to just criticize and criticize and criticize and go, Oh, look at you, you're going around killing people, but we're the ones who get to, you know, have a nice comfy, uh, you know, bedroom with a roof above our head and that kind of thing. So there's that side of it too, isn't it? I mean, I, I, shouldn't we have some respect for for you guys and what you've done and what the army's done? <laughs>
0: I think, you know, you make a, a very interesting point, right? Because it's like we do need, at least in current the current world, right? Like we need armies, we need national defense. Uh, I personally believe that once we get 50% women in all positions of leadership, maybe we'll get rid of war. But until then, we at least we are operating from this perspective that we need it. And so it is a job that somebody has to
1: do. Do you think women are less likely to to uh, be in conflict or less conflicty than men?
0: I do. I think especially I think once you've grown a human and birthed a human, I think you're much less likely to be like, let me go kill people. Um, and I, I think in the way it's similar to like some cultures, is usually based on class, fist fights are really, really common. And in other, you know, I say (laughs) my husband grew up in a world where if someone quote unquote disrespects you, you punch them. And I say all the time, like there is not a single set of words you could say to me ever that would get me to respond violently because I wasn't taught that way. And I think in a lot of ways, we as modern nations assume war will always be a part of life. And I think... Maybe that's not so true, but currently as it is, you know, we, somebody has to do it. Right. And so I've always had the, that very interesting relationship where even when I was in the army, I was like, this is a, this is my job. This is what I get paid to do. And I go do it. Um, and in Afghanistan, I feel like we were all pretty clear on that. Like we were all pretty clear that, as soldiers on the ground nobody believed in this mission nobody believed that especially after the first couple of years that like this was going to work but we would go over there for each other we would go over there for our team you know my mission both time i went to war i would honestly say i i could not have cared less about the overall goal of the united states in afghanistan i just wanted to come home alive with my people and that's sort of how it becomes when we're out there.
1: I can see how it can feel a bit uh, culty, but I think, can culty sometimes be not necessarily a bad thing?
0: Um, yes. So, you know, my whole, because alongside of writing this book, I was also getting a, a graduate degree in group dynamics, organizational psychology, and I say at some level, right, groups are just groups. They all have the same, just like all people are more alike than they are different. All groups are more alike than they all different. All groups have the same sort of basics, which means whatever group you're in is much more like the sex cult that trafficked children than you would like to think, which is sort of the point of the book and, and what I want people to realize. But I say all the time, cults do some things right. You can't spell culture without cult, right? Like these tools of motivation, these tools of influence, these are actually people first tools. And there's this show right now, Keep Sweet, Pray and Obey about fundamentalist Mormons. And he says this very interesting thing after he's left the church and doesn't believe in it anymore. But he says, I think that most people in s yes, in that society are happier than most people on the outside. And I would say kind of the same thing about the children of God, right? Like when people have these all consuming missions, and they're surrounded by people that believe just like them, and that reinforce like what a strong mission we are, what good we're doing for society. This is why people like to work at nonprofits, right? I mean, so it's, There's the same basic DNA. Um, Specifically, what happens in cults is you become insular. So isolation is a very important part of a normal group becoming a cult. And then the logic breaks down, but the group norms are so strong that everyone goes along with it anyways. And so you can have a group that's culty In its influence and in its sort of motivation and the way it energizes members that's not necessarily a bad thing um and a lot of that has to do with if your charismatic leader is a good guy or a malignant narcissist that's going to kind of be the the two different
1: experiences hey it's andrew That's EXPRESSVPN.com slash heretics. Go to ExpressVPN.com slash heretics to learn more. I suppose there's that there's this sort of satisfaction versus freedom or happiness versus freedom. Um because I've also heard it said along the lines of what you were just saying about people being happier in some sorts of cults and some sort of social groups, um, that arranged marriages tend to be more satisfied than than just typical marriages that we might know where you have the freedom of choice i 'm not sure i don 't have the stats in front of me, so I might be talking rubbish about that or it might be something i 've just heard, but that 's often said, and you can see why that might be because there 's sort of the expectations there 's sort of a ceiling on those expectations, and you don 't know and it 's not like you can look elsewhere whereas freedom of choice is I, I would go with that every time, and I think many of most people listening would as well. You want the freedom to choose, but it doesn 't mean you 'll actually be happier right
0: yeah so interestingly, because you know obviously my mom was in many different arranged marriages. Uh, one of them turned out to be 25 years and they're still together and she is happy. Um, but this is in general, this is true and this is why cu- we always see cults popping up in times of social sort of unrest. there's there's a reason we're repeating cults from the 60s right and like all the new stuff is starting right now and it has to do with exactly what you said. That when the world is confusing and loud and you have so many choices, it's really nice to have, let's call it a life coach, to tell you exactly what you should be doing, right? And to give you this very clear, very concise purpose. And you then don't have to make those choices, I remember being so exhausted from going through my undergraduate and honors and everything I was doing that I was looking forward to basic training, simply because I knew that for three months, I would not have to make any decisions like I would just have to be in the right place at the right time in the right uniform and do whatever I'm told to do. And my brain was going to get to relax, even though my sort of body was going to be working so much
1: harder. Wow, I've also heard friends of mine say a similar thing with having kids uh, because it's like they're so ambitious before that and they just want to like, you know, what am I going to do with my life? I I need to be the best of this and the most amazing that. And then you have kids and then it's like, okay, now I just need to like make enough money so that they're happy and I don't have to worry. I'm a dad. I'm a mom. I'm whatever I am. And so the pressure's off a little bit in terms of the ambition for your job. Having kids is definitely a cult, just like. (laughs) do you think?
0: Uh, It's actually, it's funny because I only have one child as a choice, and people really don't like that. They really try to convince you that you have to have more than one kid. And they kept saying this thing to me and they kept saying, but when she grows up and you're both gone, how is she going to have anyone else in the world that knows what her childhood was like, which is a fascinating thing to say to me because I have 5,000 other cult babies that know exactly (laughs) what my life was like growing up. So that to me really shows you that one, yes, all those people really are like my brothers and sisters, but two... That families are their own sorts of mini cults, right? And most families have phrases that mean stuff to their family. Like my daughter called raspberries chicken berries for, you know, two or three years. This is a Portuguese English thing. And that doesn't mean anything to anyone outside of our family, right? That is simply a code phrase in our family, which is a very important part of cults, is having your group language that immediately means stuff to you that doesn't mean stuff to the outside world. And so, yeah, I think there's a lot of ways that families are... I mean, families are groups, right? And so they have these same basic dynamics that you see in, in cults just dialed up to a million.
1: I had that just today because... Uh... I, I saw that there was a Beavers and Butthead movie coming out, and that was the cartoon I'd, I hadn't watched for like 25 years. And the person I told, I thought straight away to tell, was my brother, Just, and he's off in somewhere near the Philippines now, just like living out there somewhere. But I knew that telling him, because it just meant, like I thought if I tell someone else, they might think, oh, you're an idiot, you watch Beavers and Butthead or something like that. But I just knew because we grew up and it was just on the TV all the time. I knew he'd appreciate that. So we have that shared thing. But also, why is everyone telling you to, have uh, imagine telling someone how many kids to have. What a weird thing to have one, have half of one, like do what you want with it.
0: Yeah, yeah. No one should be bringing kids into the world if they don't want them. Like the exact number and amount that you want.
1: One's <laughs> enough. I mean, that's it's. Uh, I haven't yes. had kids, but it seems like impossible. The whole the nine months of pregnancy, the rate, the three years of nappies and like shit everywhere. Oh my yep. god.
0: Yep. And it's funny, like people say, like having a book coming out, is like having a baby. And I agree with that 100%, especially this part of like, the last the last trimester. Like it's coming out, you can't do anything to stop it. Everyone tells you your life is going to change, but nobody can tell you how like, it's, it's very weird and diaphanous.
1: Let's go back to your childhood. So tell me a few things uh, just for those who don't know. I mean, uh, w- what was what was very different to, I guess, what you would have called worldly people, which is the rest of us?
0: Um, okay. I mean, I think the biggest two things would be we lived in complete isolation and we did not go to school. So, you know, when I was growing up, we lived in these communes. They were always, you know, very tall walls, broken glass bottles on the top. Big locking gates, which is far more common in sort of the global south than you would think, right? So these are just rich people's vacation homes, essentially, that the cult would then buy or have donated. And then we would put 150 people in, you know, the house that was built for five. <laughs> and uh, we would do not even really i think i was 7 or 8 when school finally got mandated which still meant homeschool but before then i mean we were sort of just a workforce and we were we were always taught to read and add and and kind of the basics very very young so we were sort of presented as very smart precocious children especially that could you know at 5 years old i could have given you an entire treatise on any Deep, 1800s evangelical Christian doctrine that you wanted because that's what we did. And so, but, you know, really it was culture about work culture, always about work, um, power and sex for the leader as well, but also work. And so we were just kind of, we would wake up, we would have hours of, of reading the Bible. And then it was to whatever they called it ministry, right? You were on and our, our having the 25 young children scrub the house every day was called Jesus job time. Um, you know, so all of this influencing and and tying it to again, your, your greater mission and your sublimation of self. Um, the number one way that I describe our childhoods was, There was just no spontaneous moments of joy allowed. So you were born a soldier, which is the line I put in Uncultured. You know, you are always in lines. Never, if you can imagine a a row of children of God, children being brought in to do a recital or a performance for their parents, not a single three year old or two year old would dream of breaking line and being like, Mommy, right? Because. They, they would know they would be getting beat after the show. And so that was just kind of our our whole existence was the, ch- the children are a tool for Jesus. The Bible says that the children will be the ones that defend you against the enemies at the gates. So it's this sort of constant persecution. Um, when I was growing up, supposedly uh, sex with minors had been banned and that you know, this part of our history, which very much culminated with my mother at 14 being impregnated by a 40 year old. And my sort of birth and existence is the proof anyone needs when they raid this compound that bad stuff is happening. So that was when they started, essentially went underground. Um, And much, much like, I think, the Mormon church or any of these Kinds of churches that try to rebrand without redoing their values, it never actually works. So, the way the Mormons technically gave up polygamy, but they still believe in it and they still believe that's what they're going to do in heaven. So, of course, you still have sort of all of these things threaded into their religion and their practices. And this was the same with Children of God. When they At some point, they rebranded and they said, okay, we don't do religious prostitution anymore. We don't do pedophilia anymore. But not because it was wrong. Just because the world doesn't understand our kind of love. So, of course, you know, again, the pedophiles just sort of go underground.
1: Um, So that was still happening, was it? Yeah.
0: Oh, definitely very much for me. I mean, I still lived in a world full of predators and... Interestingly enough, as now that I talk about and study power dynamics, I understand it at the time because my family was famous and I was famous. You would think we were safer, but zooming out and looking at it now, you know, the, the daughter of a 15-year-old teenager in a cult clearly didn't have anyone who was going to protect her. Um, and so predators in cults work the same way as everyone else they know how to identify the the right kind of prey
1: and they would just go around in in the communes whether it be in the philippines or elsewhere and just just take girls and, and and no one sort of said anything
0: i mean kind of yes you know in the in the early years when my mom was growing up the the Prepubescent girls would be on the schedules uh, for sex, right? When my mom was 12 years old, she was considered an adult and she was asked to make a list of which of the men she would prefer to, they called it share, right? Sharing God's love with first. So it was much more sort of open and this is just what we believe. This is just what we do the same way with all of these polygamy societies that still exist, Ours was just forced polyamory, but you were only married to one person. When I was growing up, it was like, well, we don't practice this, but sex and our beliefs about open sex and that everything done in love is good and not harmful was still threaded through our entire lives, right? We still read comic books that my stepfather would draw that taught you how to preach the Bible to your gang rapers during the end of times, right? Like these were the kinds of things that we grew up with. So it was definitely like, at no point did it ever stop being a sex cult. That was always the differentiator. That was always some basic run-of-the-mill extreme evangelicalism. But instead of sex being bad, sex is really, really good. And that was what sort of flipped everything.
1: How did that feel for you, for you as a child, being told this is good, this is good, this is good, and then things that in our society we would now recognize as being very wrong, you know, how and, and how has it shaped how you feel now, do you think, those experiences?
0: So I think a couple things, you know, I went through, I don't know if I was born an atheist or if I just went through such extreme abuse and isolation literally before the age of six, that by the age of six, and I give you this in a very powerful scene in my book, I have decided that God doesn't exist. And so the rest of the time, it doesn't really matter to me that you're telling me, you know, a grown man having sex with me is telling me that this is God's love, because I'm like, I've rejected your God, and I, I don't care. Um, but it is, you know, you don't have the language for that, or you don't have the thoughts for that. I remember, you know, thinking that my mom knew what was going on and was fine with it because she'd grown up in it too. So she must understand that when the uncles are dragging us away to be sort of corporally corporally punished, like there might be this other element to it too. And of course, since then we've realized like... No, she didn't know any of that right She had full faith and trust in her leadership, that everything was good and and pure. and she also didn't realize, you know, that all the things that had happened to her had been rape because they were programmed as love. Um, and so I, yeah, I would say that like the difference for me, I think is, It always, like sexual abuse for children always feels wrong. But for me, the programming didn't take as much as, you know, when I was 12 and I found out that my father wasn't the teenage boy they had married my mom off to, but was actually this guy who had been 40 when she was 14. My first thought at 12 was, that's rape. I should never exist. Um... And this was from a community where we were actively taught that sort of rape didn't exist and everything was done in love, but I still knew that right away, right? I knew that 14-year-olds should not be sleeping with 40-year-olds. Like Something about that is very wrong. And for a lot of the teenagers that grew up in the first round of the Children of God in much more isolation with much less choice... I just think the programming worked a lot better on them. So they didn't have a lot of those realizations until they were out of the cult and much older.
1: And, and that's quite, uh, quite a thought that y- you shouldn't exist. Uh, how does that affect you today? I mean, obviously you should exist, but you know what I mean.
0: Um, I mean, I spent, this is actually a theme in Uncultured, is that I spend a lot of my life after the cult then trying to prove, well, first of all, I, I finally get out of the cult. I'm 15. I show up, I've dropped off in America with $0 and I show up to enroll in high school. And I literally have two pieces of paper, which is a passport and a social security card. And they say to me, we cannot enroll you in high school because you don't exist. Um, and so then I spend, you know, really probably the next decade of my life, trying to prove that I exist. And finally, you know, when I am a captain in the army and I have made history for women and I have done all these things and I'm like, okay, I exist now. Um, Great, what am I supposed to do with it, right? Or or why doesn't it feel better? Um, And I eventually had this realization that, you know, you can't just run away from all your trauma, you have to deal with it. Um, And I am glad that I exist, but that definitely doesn't – I think I would also be glad for a world where my mother got to have a childhood and then I didn't exist because of
1: that. Well, that would be sad because I wouldn't get to have this conversation, this brilliant conversation with you. Um, But yeah, I mean (sighs) – how did you then go about leaving the cult at about, you were 15, weren't you, when you decided you wanted to?
0: Um, I was six when I had the thought, well, if you have to be in the family to go to heaven, I'm sure not going to enjoy hell, uh, but I'm not going to be in the family. And I sort of started scheming uh, at 11. I decided I was going to make a concerted effort to be trouble. Um, and to like really in my mind be like, I want to leave. And then at 15, um, I mean, I was again in my teenage years subjected to some really bad sexual violence. And I was so miserable at the point that I was like, this is my basic survival. Like I need to get out of here. So that was when I realized like If they think they can save you, that's really dangerous. That's when they take you and put you through exorcisms and try to make you recommit and change your name and send you to a different commune and do all of these things. But if they think you're the devil, then they just excommunicate you. So long story short, snuck out of the house, had sex with a systemite you can't do that.
1: What's a systemite again?
0: A systemite is anyone who's not in the Children of God.
1: Oh, how um, did you find so this person?
0: a neighborhood boy that you know. We were we were starting to be. There was a there was a switch in the Children of God after the prophet died and his wife took over, and she created a charter of rights which is the very thing you don't want to do, future cult leaders, if you're out there, is uh, give, give your people that have already accepted that they have no rights, is give them the idea of rights. Um, and that started, I think, the 20-year decline. So at this time, when I'm a teenager, we're living in a regular house in Mexico with two families together. And we have to, by definition, like, exist out in the world. Like we have to take the children out to the park because we don't have 20 acres of Brazilian jungle to go play in, in the backyard. So we, I mean, that was how I met this guy. He was the 17 year old teenager, hang out at the park. And of course, everyone wants to come talk to the the white blonde girls that speak Spanish and uh, just ended up meeting. And I just, I mean, to me, it was a bit of dating and normal, you know, normal teenage stuff. But it was also like I knew I was going to get caught and I kind of wanted to get caught because I wanted it's really one It's really hard to leave your total control group and your religion. It's been compared to death, essentially. And it's really, really hard to tell your parents that you are rejecting everything they have dedicated your life to and you're willing to go to hell and never see them again. So I just for myself needed, like I needed to be in so much trouble that I could actually say to my parents, like, I want to leave the family. And then I was, you know, I was excommunicated pretty fast after that, which is, in my case, was finding an older you know, if your, if your teenage children wanted to leave the cult and you couldn't find a place for them, you had to leave too, generally, or some people just kicked them out. Um, most of my peers got to go live with their grandparents who had lost their own children to cults and were happy to have their grandchildren back. My grandfather was, you know, the, the CPA of the cult. So I ended up with the, uh, like the finance guy who like ran the money, um, So he was a leader in the cults, so I didn't, you know, have obvious places to go. Um, Eventually ended up with a stepsister that I'd met twice and, you know, 15, got a job, figured out how to get into school. And that was just, I would say, six years of trying to survive and really, really not finding my place where I fit. And so that was, you know, a big part of the decision to join the army was like, well, I'll have a group. I'll have a career. I'll, you know, have someone telling me what to do next.
1: When you when you got first out, I mean, so the thing, I guess you had already been half well mixing mingling with other people outside of the outside of the church in Mexico. Um, but were there things that were totally new to you? I mean, for example, I remember interviewing a Hasidic Jewish woman who had only been in the cult. And when she came out, she went to a job interview for somewhere very like high up or something. And she wore just like jeans and she was told she didn't get the job because she wore jeans. And she was like, I don't understand why one thing she'd never seen like clothes that weren't the clothes they had.
0: Civilian clothes or clothes from inside the group was all she'd seen. She'd never, you know, been taught how to wear
1: these things yeah we we attach significance to certain clothes like a suit we say oh that's that's smart and just like jeans we say it's not but somebody who's never seen human beings wouldn't know which one's smart and which one isn't and that just blew my mind i was like wow i'd never thought of that were there things like that for you
0: so many things uh by the way i will say huge problem for veterans when they leave the military is not knowing how to dress like normal adults so that's another thing that we see um you know, for me, like I, and I have this chapter in uncultured called dazed and confused, and I'm dropped into high school, I've never been to school a day in my life. And I'm 15 years old. And I'm in a 4000 person high school in Houston. And all they did when I finally get enrolled is they just hand me a schedule. Um, You know, I have this scene in Uncultured when I'm like trying to ask this policeman, like, how do I find my locker? What is a locker? And he's kind of like, well, your schedule just works like every other school you've ever been to, you know, and so you're really kind of talking past people. And the one really funny one I had is here in the U S when you take a, like a multiple choice test in school, you use this thing called a scantron and you fill it out with a pencil and then they feed it into a reader and it grades your answers. Well, I filled mine out with a pen and I've even been asked since then, like, did it not say use a number two pencil? Did your teacher not say use a number two pencil? And I'm like, I wouldn't have known what a number two pencil was And so I get this test back, and it's a zero. And the teacher, of course, is looking at this white, blonde girl without an accent, 16-year-old girl who's doing just fine in his class so far, just being very quiet, and just thinks, like, I'm just being a punk. Like, Meanwhile, I don't understand, because I studied really hard for this test, like, why I got a zero, but I don't know how to ask the question. And he doesn't know how to, you know understand. And that's one of the things I think for me, that was like, so for six years, I was essentially completely indigent and just struggling to put myself through high school and college, but only about two or three times did an adult ever recognize that, right? Because I was so intent on passing as normal. And we were taught to be so paranoid and so petrified about the outside world. And if anyone found out that I was from a cult, I thought I would be, you know, immediately thrown out of everything. And so it's very like, you know, I had a couple moments that probably saved my life, like in high school, when a a gym teacher told me there was financial aid. And so I was able to go get like, literally money for lunch, which I had just been eating one meal a day for a month or two until then, um, at my job where they would front me the food. And so there were these little things, you know, but nobody, nobody thinks, you know, when you ask your boss at a fast food restaurant, like, can I put my meals on credit till I get my first paycheck? They just don't think you have extra cash. They don't think, oh, you're a 16 year old that lives completely alone and doesn't have money
1: for food. they probably don't yeah. want to pry.
0: Yeah, and that and I think being white was a big part of a big part of it. You know, I think if I was I would say if I looked or sounded as Brazilian as I feel sometimes, like I think I would have had a different Um, I mean, I got a lot of hand ups and hand outs, I think, because I'm white and people always give me the benefit of the doubt.
1: But that worked against you in a way as well.
0: Yes. I also think when I was quite young, like I slipped through a lot of cracks because nobody looks at the white girl and wonder if things are okay at home, at least not in the same way in the US as they do for people of
1: colour. That happens in the, the Beavers and Butthead movie that I just watched last night because uh, they get someone gives them a speech about how they're white so they have white privilege but they're like these they're really poor and, and really stupid. The difference with you is you're extremely eloquent. So I think that probably added to it as well. You've, you've got a great vocabulary, and I imagine was much better than the average 15, 16-year-old. That wouldn't have helped as well.
0: <laughs> when you grow up with the King James English, yes. Um, and I you know, wanted to say, like just just to be super clear, I understand that I have tons of white privilege. And in fact, the first time that I heard the term, someone, it was another white person who had come through being poor and they were trying to get me to agree that white privilege didn't exist. And it was a Daniella, you of all people must know. And I was like, no, I'm sorry. Like I can tell you 10 times when sort of being an attractive white girl helped me in America when I had nothing else going for me. And so I know that it very much does exist. Um, and You know, now that I've been able to pull myself out of poverty, I've been able to just walk away from my disprivileged identities in a way that other people cannot do.
1: Hey, do people ask, does does it get annoying if people ask a lot about like Joaquin Phoenix? Was he part of the same thing?
0: He was. It doesn't get annoying. Um... Sometimes I think within our own community, people are like, "Well, Joaquin Phoenix and uh, Rose McGowan is another one, right? That they were very young when their parents left the cult." And I think that when you grow up in a sex cult, it doesn't matter how young you leave; you can still be very impacted and very, um, you know, like like that stuff follows you the rest of your life. And with Joaquin Phoenix
1: hierarchy of victimhood like people competing
0: oh yes <laughs> the drama olympics is strong it's true with veterans too um but with Joaquin Phoenix right i mean it's impossible to separate out the suicidal ideology like was that drugs in hollywood or was that the childhood where you didn't get a childhood and we have now being compared by scholars to like the same rates of suicide as Holocaust survivors, like once you're out, once you're safe, you still can't take the trauma and can't deal with the trauma. And so, you know, Joaquin Phoenix's trajectory I think is a very, very common, what happens to a lot of us cult babies. It
1: was his brother, wasn't it? Oh, sorry. River Phoenix, yes.
0: Yeah, River Phoenix was was the one who was... I think Joaquin Phoenix was about four or five when he left.
1: Yeah, Joaquin still got... He definitely looks like he's got some trauma, doesn't he?
0: Yeah, yeah, he's good at playing... Uh, he's definitely good at playing a villain. Um, you know, I think, like, I had this similar thing when we look at sort of a a river Phoenix or a Rose McGowan's different trajectories where I really thought that at some point I could put it all behind me. And the point where I realized that wasn't true was when I became a captain in the army. And I was like, I'm supposed to be okay now. And I still want to die. What's going on? Um, And that's, I think, actually a lot of us now like I have a lot of peers in our 30s and 40s who we got out we did everything quote-unquote right right we didn't go crazy with the drugs and the partying we went to school we got government jobs and we did all the right stuff and now in our 30s and 40s we're kind of falling apart trying to put everything in place and that's The only reason I wrote a book was because it was killing me not
1: to. Yeah, and do you think part of becoming captain in the army, do you think that started back uh, when you saw the 9-11 stuff on TV?
0: Definitely, that was when, like, being a soldier. I wouldn't even say being a soldier. Like, that was when being an American first became a thing to me, right? Where it was like... (laughs) So 9-11 is the first time I hear the term religious extremists. And I realize we are sort of happy praising God for this destruction. And that is crazy to me. It's also the first time I saw live television on. Um, But it also, we had just only been in America for six months. And so I grew up as I'm an American, but always abroad, coming to America at 14 was my biggest culture shock ever. We are taught America's evil, America's Babylon the whore. And all we see when we go out trying to proselytize and convert people is America's is very, very Christian. Um, and so there's all of this cognitive dissonance going on for me. And also my life in America was the best it ever had been in the cult. So I'm loving it. And then all of a sudden... You know, there's nothing like an outside attack to make people come together, right? And so when that happened to me, it was like, oh, not only have I just sort of become an American, but now we're under attack. And I think that always stuck with me. And then one of my one of my way outs too in high school, one of my options was joining the military essentially as a social elevator to get myself to go to college. And so I just always had that in the back of my head, I
1: think. Did people think that it was um, the apocalypse or something at the time?
0: I definitely did. (laughs) Um, I remember being 14 and being like, huh, I wonder what our leader is going to say right tomorrow or the next day about like, obviously this was all God's plan. And obviously this is part of his judgment, but is this starting the apocalypse? And all I will say about the the woman who took over from the prophet is she was smarter than him. And so she never, she used Y2K, for example, to get everybody rededicated and right with God and be prepared for what might happen. But she never, like, the Prophet predicted three separate apocalypses pegged to exact days. And she never did that. So she was able to just sort of use whatever was going on in the world as an influence tool without sort of giving people that ability to question.
1: How did you become a captain in the army? And and what is... um... A captain, because I think people who are not familiar with the uh, military won't know all the different levels and things.
0: Um, so I became an army officer completely by accident. <laughs> um, the difference is that so we have the enlisted, which is you're going as a private, and you go through being a sergeant all the way up to sergeant major, and those are sort of the workers, right, the line workers. And then you have the officers; you start as a lieutenant, and you go up through general, and those are management. I joined the army thinking I was going to be a linguist and I did not understand this sort of difference in between enlisted and officer. But I knew that I could be an officer because I had a college degree. And it wasn't until literally in sort of the process of going in and they're asking me like, why do you think you'll be a good leader and all these different things that I started to realize there is a difference. And then, I mean, you sort of, Become a captain if you are in the right place in the right time in the right uniform and you, you know, hit sort of the different tick marks, right? So going on a deployment helps out a lot, Um, getting specific awards and then doing different jobs, right? So I had to be, you know, assistant intelligence officer at this level and then you get to the next job and then... I was actually put into a captain job as a lieutenant just because we were so in the middle of the surge. So I was a 24-year-old and I was the seniorest intelligence officer for a unit of a thousand people, which is completely bonkers if you think about it. But it's a good motivation tool because putting people in jobs that they're not qualified for gets them to work really, really
1: hard. And my... So you head, went in... Oh, go on, sorry. I was
0: gonna say my boss, uh who's Scott Halter is a character, beloved character in the book, he was a really good cult leader and he was good at using influence to mold, like using influence tactics and motivation tactics to make a really great team and kind of this transformational team that we all loved being a
1: part of. So you went in wanting to be a linguist. Um, so what languages do you speak then? Portuguese and Spanish?
0: Yes. I speak Portuguese, Spanish, and English, and I learn languages very easily. So I test very highly on like linguistic ability. Um, but really for me, I think it was just always about culture And I used to describe it when I was younger. People would say, what career do you want? And I would just say, international. (laughs) I don't care what I do. I just want to be international. And eventually, I sort of narrowed it down to like, I love language. I love culture. I love understanding the differences between why we do one thing in one culture that we think is completely crazy in another culture.
1: That's why you're perfect for this podcast. Eu posso te falar em português se si você quiser.
0: Ai, que coisa! Eu não sabia que você fala português.
1: <laughs> Eu não falo, não falo muito bem. Uh, meu espanhol é muito melhor.
0: <laughs> que bueno! Oh, well, this is
1: a point in the podcast. Pretty much every episode, I find a way to show off that I can speak some languages as well. And I love that you do as well. I love finding kindred language spirit people.
0: Yes, really cool, um, and that's actually been like it's it's been funny for me, right? Where my integration into the U.S. has been harder, because in some ways I think because I insist on not just being the basic white girl. I insist on you know the fact that I speak languages. I raised my daughter for five years in in Portuguese. Um, and then she outpaced me. Um, we had to switch to English. But, um, you know, and I, I like to travel. I much prefer curry to hamburgers. And so there's always been this sort of like, Daniela, why are you so un-American? Um,
1: yeah, you should live in England. Although we don't learn languages either, really. That's part of why I did it as well. I think I've got an ego thing. And it was just like being able to go abroad and people go, oh, you're English. Are you? And they never expect asked to speak other languages and stuff. So that's why I got quite obsessed with it because I was tired of everyone going, oh, you're English, you won't speak any languages.
0: Well, and that's one of the things I love about Portuguese, right? Which is like, Brazilians are already probably the most friendly country on earth. But there's also kind of this like little brother complex because like if you're a Spanish speaker, you meet people from all over the world that speak Spanish just as good as you. But if you're Brazilian, like you almost never meet someone that speaks Brazilian Portuguese who's not sort of connected. And so I absolutely love to just walk up to, I can hear when a Brazilian is speaking English, I can hear the accent. And so I could just like walk up to a person and start speaking Portuguese to them. And they won't even comprehend it the first time because there's no threat model in their head. There was no expectation that this white girl was going to come up and start speaking Portuguese to them. But then imme- immediately we're best friends, so it's great.
1: But don't, don't you worry then that it's – because you can hear that they are Brazilian by how they speak English. So don't you worry that it's insulting them because it's – because I do the same thing. It's like I, you can hear a French person from a mile away. But then you, if you say – if you just go and start speaking French, then they'll be like, oh, it must be my bad accent.
0: Um, so not with Brazilians, I don't, because Brazilians – love Brazil and love being Brazilian. And they also love Americans. So it's like not a problem. I did have to learn, because I used to all the time when I would hear anyone's accent, I would say, oh, my god, where are you from? And for me, that's such a like, I want to connect with you because I'm not from here either. But I started noticing, especially with a lot of Europeans, that they would just get this look on their face like, I'm from here, or why are you asking me? um and now the more that i understand i don't i don't ever say that question anymore now i always usually find a way to bring up that i am from somewhere else first if i suspect that somebody is a foreigner and then that way they are welcome to volunteer the information or they're welcome to be from cleveland and that's the conversation that i will have with them
1: because i've had that and i've been like where are you from and then they've been like "Uh, i'm from uh, london and i'm like you're definitely not but then you end up in a situation where you're sort of telling someone you know you look like you're some anti-immigrant person where are you from Tell me where you're from. I don't want you in my country. When actually it was because you wanted to just show off your languages or speak to someone from a different culture or whatever.
0: Yeah, and that was the, you know, so the sort of realization that I have was, first of all, and especially now that I've written a book, like, I want it to be respected. Like, I say I'm from Brazil. I'm not Brazilian. I'm American, but I'm from Brazil, right? Like, I spent 10 years of my childhood there, and I, and Brazilians accept that, so I want everyone to accept that. Um, But it was also just like... I started to realize, especially with some immigrants, like I'm giving them this moment of panic that they think, oh, great. Now I'm going to be in a conversation with this person that doesn't want me here. And so even when it turns out to be a great conversation about their homeland later, like I don't I don't like giving them that fear.
1: Tell me about, because we're, we're running out of time because I got obsessed about languages, um, sidetracked by them, I always do. But tell me a little bit, what's what sort of the... Were you on the field as an army person, as a captain? Because this, all this stuff is fascinating to me. Because I'm just like I sit in my home and I don't do anything. So, what was it like? Yes, yeah, so I deployed twice uh, to Afghanistan, and I was one of. So, I was an
0: intelligence officer, which is essentially you work in an office, and sometimes people shoot rockets at you, but generally you work in an office and then you come home. I got to volunteer to be one of the women, first women going into ground combat for the army. The Marines started it in 2010. The army started in 2011. And I was on like their first training team, which, you know, became very obvious that they gave us us 40 hours of cultural sensitivity training and armor that didn't fit our bodies because we're women and nobody had considered boobs before. And then we were sent out on these missions. And I actually think that's like, that's one of the things. I somewhat suspect these missions were intended to fail and they were intended to prove the pseudoscience that everyone then believed that women couldn't handle it. And then we got out there and they realized like, oh, when both men and women are trying to kill you, it's a good idea. To have both men and women on the team. You know, I have this story where in uncultured, where we go to this village and the men notice that the sand looks funny. And I notice that there are no children. And so together we figure out like, before we get to the bomb in the road that we don't want to go there. And I think that's kind of the experience that was just sort of had everywhere. And so then it's not surprising that two years later, ranger school was opened up to women, right? Because they realized like, well, they're out there doing it anyways, probably we should get them the training. So yeah, I was part of this first group that didn't at all know what they were doing. Um, and then my second deployment, I was the senior intelligence officer for a battalion. So I flew for an aviation battalion, so I flew above a lot of war zones, but on that one I didn't like get in and do much. I just sat in my hole predicting what was gonna happen.
1: Man, I have so much respect for you guys. Tell me about um just like a quick thing on on the book, Uncultured and where people can get it, presumably Amazon and stuff like that.
0: Yes. So it's available in America and Canada, wherever you buy books. It's also coming out in Australia in December. Otherwise, yes, Amazon. Um, it will be electronic and audible and be available everywhere. And it is, it's a memoir, right? It's 100% story. I encourage people that its it's very page turning. And I wrote it with fiction authors. So they were good at, you know, character development and all that. But the hope is, you know, as you said, and as we're already hearing from readers, like nobody dreams of comparing a sex cult that traffics children and the US Army. And so once you go through and you see all of these parallels, you start looking at every group that you're in. And I really think if you look at every group that you're in and you just ask yourself, is this a little bit of a cult? Like, you're already better. Like, you're already set up better to notice sort of the toxic influence.
1: Thank you, Daniela, for joining me on the edge. Thank you, listeners. Wasn't that mind-blowing? We continue our chat on patreon.com slash andrewgold, so do sign up there to keep on listening. Make sure to buy Daniela's book, Uncultured, a memoir, and follow her on socials. I'll be live in the YouTube version of this that comes out at 9pm UK time so come chat with me there I'll be on the sidebar just chatting away with everyone that's all I've got to say right now what a wonderful guest Daniela was it's just sometimes you get that feeling of yeah she's really good have a lovely day wherever you are in the world and thank you for all your comments likes sharing with friends and everything else